Welcome to the Words of Wesleyan, a podcast from the Shapiro Center for Writing, where we explore the words and people that shape our university community. On today's episode, we're talking to this semester's editors-in-chief of the Argus, Wesleyan student newspaper. First, we're speaking with Sarah McRae, a senior majoring in the College of Letters with a writing certificate. Next, we'll speak to the Argus's other editor-in-chief, Nathan Pugh, a senior with a double major in English and theater. Each of them will read a segment from a written work which has been influential for them, and then speak about the role of writing in their studies and lives. Now, let's hear from Sarah McRae. My name is Sarah McRae. I am a senior at Wesleyan, and I am majoring in the College of Letters with a writing certificate. And this semester, I am one of the editors-in-chief of the Argus. And I'm someone who really enjoys writing and talking about writing, so I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. What are you going to be reading for us today? So I chose a passage from a very strange book. Um, It's from a book by the author Clarice Lispector, who was a uh, Ukrainian Jew, but she moved to Brazil and wrote in Portuguese. But in the past, and she wrote in the the second part of the 20th century, um, in the past 10 years, there have been these new translations issued from New Directions that have kind of caused this big resurgence of Clarice Lispector fans. And she is um, so fascinating. Her writing is extremely strange and weird and mystical. And I read this book, which is called The Passion According to G.H., like the letters, um, when I was abroad, uh, and I was abroad over the summer because I was a transfer student, and I went to France, and there was this heat wave that, like, really ripped across this whole southern region where I was, and it was, there were about three weeks where it didn't get below like 115, um, which was insane. And so I was indoors a lot and I was reading a lot and I read this book by Clarice Lispector and had this kind of, I think it's dramatic to say like a mystical experience, but I think that because I was in such a weird frame of mind because it was so warm and the book is so strange um, and kind of at least traditionally plotless and so experimental and beautiful, I really had this, this kind of experience with it. So um, I'm just going to read a passage from from that. And she she writes very strangely. It's in translation, but they kind of translated the way that she writes, um, I imagine, in this kind of twisted syntax. So it might be hard to read aloud, but I'll try. (laughs) Okay. Ah, but to reach muteness, what a great effort of voice. My voice is the way I go in search of reality. Reality, before my language, exists like a thought that is not thought, but inescapably I was and am compelled to need to know what the thought thinks. Reality precedes the voice that seeks it, but as the earth precedes the tree, but as the world precedes the man, but as the sea precedes the vision of the sea, life precedes love, the matter of the body precedes the body, and in turn language one day will have preceded the possession of silence. I have to the extent I designate, and this is the splendor of having a language, but I have much more to the extent I cannot designate. Reality is the raw material, language is the way I go in search of it, and the way I do not find it. But it is from searching and not finding that what I did not know was born, and which I instantly recognize. Language is my human effort. 
My destiny is to search, and my destiny is to return empty-handed. But I return with the unsayable. The unsayable can only be given to me through the failure of my language. Only when the construction fails can I obtain what it could not achieve. And it is no use to try to take a shortcut and want to start, already knowing that the voice says little, starting straight away with being depersonal. For the journey exists, and the journey is not simply a manner of going. We ourselves are the journey. In the matter of living, one can never arrive beforehand. The via crucis is not a detour. It is the only way. One cannot arrive except along it and with it. Persistence is our effort. Giving up is the reward. Only One only reaches it having experienced the power of building, and, despite the taste of power, preferring to give up. Giving up must be a choice. Giving up is the most sacred choice of a life. Giving up is the true human instant. And this alone is the very glory of my condition. That was my message, yeah. There's a lot in there. Um. Thank you so much for that reading. That was really well done. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit more about what this piece means to you, um, the ways that it speaks to you as a writer and as a, a lover of literature? Sure. Um, yeah, so this novel is essentially about a woman who, she's a sculptor and she's living in Brazil and she is alone in her apartment. And I think it's been a while since I read it, but I think that she goes into the maid's chamber and she's kind of cleaning the maid's chamber, which is already kind of a weird irony. And she goes to the closet and accidentally smushes a cockroach in the door of the closet and the rest of the book which is about like 250 pages or something is just this mystical encounter she has with this cockroach that makes her completely reconfigure her understandings of who she is and what her boundaries are and what her purpose in life is um it's again a deeply strange book I wouldn't say that I sit around reading work this experimental all the time but um I think I love it a lot because it shows me the limits of what writing can do it's first of all something so different and unfamiliar to something that's more plot-based and something that um is language that's just communicating a meaning like this work to me and her writing in general really makes language come alive so that you're really aware that what you're hearing is an embodied sound, not something that's just like transcendent and communicating just the like meaning behind the words. She's really like in the kind of muck of the words um, as she's writing. And I think that's really appealing to me um, because it gets me to slow down and read over those sentences again. And then what she's saying about this, like in this passage, she's saying that um, language as a human effort is something that can never be achieved, like, because language will always fall short of what you're trying to make it do, but that doesn't mean that you can't keep trying, because it's, like, the trying that is going to get you to the place where you acknowledge the full, like, profundity of the silence that's on the other side of language. So I think that there's this this real battle between, like, what can be said and what can't be said that's, like, playing out on the page, and as a writer 
probably like less poetically that's something I struggle with like all the time <laughs> is like how do I say what I want to say like how do I if like we think the purpose of language is to represent something which like is often what nonfiction writing is and, and a lot of writing and I'm starting to veer away from that belief but in search of that belief of trying to represent like a moment as it happens how can you acknowledge like the boundaries and like the limits of what language can do um and kind of make peace with it or at least like trust in like that that conflict that makes writing seem really difficult all the time mm-hmm. what's the relationship like between your thoughts on language and your very like journalistic role um I mean I think that the Argus newsroom probably has a slightly different vibe than a hotel in Brazil where a woman is thinking about the death of a cockroach Um, how do you feel like you you bring those two perspectives together yeah that's a great question um I mean, I think that's something that I'm still warring with myself over um, and something I haven't really figured out. I I think I like came to writing as someone who just really like loved stories and like really was so hungry for them and so um, eager for them as a kid. And I think I really found most of that in literature um, and in fictional stories where there's these questions of like what is storytelling where does storytelling get us what does storytelling do and then when I was in high school I like joined the school paper and kind of found journalism and it was a completely different way of using my brain with language like in journalism you're not supposed to be thinking about like the failure of the linguistic form to represent something like you're supposed to represent it it's like a fact and it's done but I think that having this, like, these two sides of myself, like, the one side's able to look at something and say, like, this is a fact and I feel comfortable printing this and, like, I want to talk to people and get their voices into a journalistic story and represent people's um, stories in a way that hopefully can help enact change or do something um, to get people informed is, like, a very different side uh, of myself than than the part that is is thinking about the limits of, of language, but I think that those two definitely come together um, in, like, the journalistic work I like doing. Like, I think I have a an interest in how to, in uh, questioning these kind of assumptions of journalism, uh, like, the objectivity standards and the the ways that we kind of bypass thinking about what, what language and what stories actually do. Because whether you're writing a, a news story that is organized in a specific way, featuring specific voices, or you're writing, like, a thought experiment or a uh, philosophical novel, as the <laughs> inspector is doing, you you still have to ask yourself the same questions, which are, like, what what is the story I'm trying to tell and how am I going to tell it in the most effective way? Yeah. Speaking kind of more generally, what do you feel like is the role of writing in your life like right now I know you mentioned a little bit about kind of your history with always loving storytelling um but like where does writing come up for you in your everyday life Hmm. well I think as a Wesleyan student it comes up quite a lot (laughs) I think that all my classes are quite writing intensive so I would say here um 
I don't think that writing for me is as cathartic as um, I used to believe it was, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I I think that um, sometimes my challenge is like getting away from words and getting um, what, I, what I need kind of a, a reprieve from that, but I think that the role of writing in my life right now as I'm editor of the paper, so I'm staying up real late on Thursday nights and editing a bunch of stories or um, as I'm writing my thesis, which is due sooner than I would hope. <laughs> um, right now, writing for me is uh, basically, a. I would say right now writing for me is the practice of asking questions. And that's kind of purposefully vague because I think I'm asking a lot of questions, but I, I find that writing for me and like in, especially in an educational environment is a way that I can like really ask questions that don't necessarily have answers. And sometimes they do have answers and that's probably more the journalism side, but um, like a vehicle for me to really just be in wonder of the world as much as I possibly can and get outside of myself and um, my own emotions and um, I think that yeah that writing is a way for me to be in relation and like be a wonder of, of the world hmm. when you have those moments of wonder when you have those moments where you're asking the questions that you feel like you don't have answers like what does that feel like when you encounter you know a text that really like ignites that within you like brings out those feelings of wonder and reminds you why you do this like what is that like I think in terms of reading and it probably feels similar to good moments of writing for me there seems to be some dissolving of boundaries between like the self and the world and I think often um the ideas of like writing and authorship can be really ego focused, but I think that when you're really reading like a great piece of writing, there starts to be some like slipping between your own experience and what you're reading. Um, and that probably applies more to the literary text that I'm drawn toward, but I also think like a great piece of journalism can really engross you in someone else's experience to the extent that you are forgetting a little bit that your experience is different from theirs. So I think that like people say a lot that like literature is really conducive to empathy. And I think that's true. Um, even if it's like a bit tired at this point, but I think that, <laughs> um, for me, that still is like the root of what it is, is just like kind of being able to get outside of like the limited experiences that I have of the world and come into contact with something bigger than myself. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful one. That's just about our time. Uh, but thank you so much for appearing on the show. It was so great to have you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That was Sarah McRae, a senior majoring in the College of Letters with a writing certificate. Next, we'll be hearing from Sarah's co-EIC, Nathan Pugh. 
Before we continue, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, be sure to check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate all of your support, and feel free to reach out to us with your comments anytime at ShapiroWritingCenter at gmail.com. Now, let's hear from Nathan Pugh. Just a note, Nathan's reading contains a content warning for racialized violence. Hi everyone, I am Nathan Pugh. I am a senior at Wesleyan, um, and I guess um, for the spring semester, um, I'm one of the editors-in-chief along with Sarah McRae of the Wesleyan Art Guest. Great. And what are you going to be reading for us today? I will be reading a passage from Hanif Abdurraqib's book, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, which is an essay collection. I'll be reading the sort of second part of his essay, A Night in Bruce Springsteen's America. Great. Whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and get started. I have been thinking a lot about the question of who gets to revel in their present with an eye still on their future, and who gets discussed as though nothing about them could be promising. The river, stripped down to its base, is a romantic story about a guy who has nothing, trying to make his life and love's work in a world that doesn't always give him the breaks he thinks he deserves. Hanging above Mike Brown's memorial was a small paper sign. It read in all capital letters, They can't kill us until they kill us. It seemed odd at first to see this statement over the memorial of a person who had been murdered and long buried. I think the consideration, though, was that when you come from a people born of a true oral tradition, you live lives even after you are no longer living a life. Mike Brown was flawed, but young enough to be romanticized in the way that Springsteen's romantics bleed all throughout the river, where mistakes are large and beautiful and pointing to some much more spectacular end. What I understand about The River now, that I didn't before I saw it in New Jersey, is that this is an album about coming to terms with the fact that you are going to eventually die, written by someone who seemed to have an understanding of the fact that he was going to live for a long time. It is an album of a specific type of optimism, one not afforded to everyone who listens to it. It is an album of men and women and families in the grand idea of surviving to enjoy it all. It is often fearless and forward-looking in its talk of both love and loss. There's a conflict between dreams and reality, of course, but the reality is still always one of survival. As the final saxophone solo in Drive All Night kissed every corner of the Prudential Center and hundreds of cell phone flashlights cut through the dark of the arena, I realized that I am now the age Bruce Springsteen was when The River was released in 1980. I once thought that I saw the same version of adulthood that The River speaks of, one with conflict and celebration, but always living. It is 2016, and not watching the videos of Black people murdered doesn't mean that Black people aren't still being murdered. I try not to think about death, my own, or that of anyone I love but I don't consider the future in the way that the river seems to consider the future. I don't fear what the future holds as much as I fear not being alive long enough to see it. It could have been the ghost of Ferguson that I carried with me to New Jersey, or the sheer emotional exhaustion I felt as the last notes of Wreck on the Highway died out, 
but I felt like I fell in a different type of love with the river after seeing it in this way. What it must feel like to write an album like this, to listen to an album like this with different eyes on the world. What it must feel like to imagine that no one in America will be killed while a man sings a song about the promise of living. Wow. Thank you for that. That was really well read. Can you speak a little bit about what made you pick this piece and what it means to you? Yeah, so um, Hanif Abdurraqib is a really um, talented writer and also just is producing um, so many new books recently. It's kind of shocking. Um, But I was really struck with his essay collection, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, because um, a lot of it is just written as a music review of an album or a concert that he's going to um, or, you know, something that he listened to in college. Um, But he's taking the music review form and imbuing it with all of his personal identity, all of his um, perspective of looking at the world and what is happening in the world as he is watching a concert or listening to something. And then also what music does to the world, into a space, into um, audiences that may or may not have been intended. Um, So I'm I'm very taken by (laughs) his work. I was introduced to it by um, one of our former arts and culture editors at the newspaper, um, Tara Joy. And um, I've been recommending it to everyone since. So, yeah. Mm. You have considerable experience writing for arts and culture at the Argus, right? What do you try and do when you're writing reviews of piece of art or music or writing? Yeah, that's something that I've definitely thought about a lot as discussions have grown about um, what even a critic should be (laughs) or what um, is the purpose of, you know, artistic journalism. Um, I, you know, I tend, I I think we've been seeing this trend throughout um, the journalism world of trying to acknowledge that there's no clear cut objectivity, that no matter who you are, you're a person with biases that might be implicit or not. and that you have to just be honest about bringing all of yourself um, and all of what you're thinking and all of what you hold to a piece of writing. Um, And I think that the art critic role is great for that because my favorite art critics like um, Hanif Abdurraqib, I I go to for their specific voice and for their specific take on whatever they're watching or whatever they're listening to. Um, I guess like I'm just a big fan of breaking down the misconception that, you know, you can get to some objective this <laughs> in journalism, whether it's, you know, someone writing um, a newspaper piece about, you know, something that happened in the news or a critical art piece about your experience going to see a show. Mm. How did you first get involved in journalism and how did you find a home in art criticism? Yeah, so I 
Um, I'm an English and a theater major, um, and for a long time, I just was trying to try everything, honestly, at Wesleyan, mm. um, just to see like what I was into. Um, and I would find myself being in a kind of middle ground space between creative work and um, academic research, I would say. Um, so, you know, I would be in like a play class, a playwriting class, and I'd be like, oh, I want to bring in all this like academic theory and research. And then they're like, well, like Nathan, like what, what are these people saying to each other? I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when I was in, you know, in the academic research thing, I was like, oh, this relates to my life so much. And I want to like write about like my experience growing up. And then um, I would realize like, oh, this is going kind of beyond the grounds of like forming an argument. Um, so I think I struggled for a long time finding a kind of a neutral ground between, you know, critical analysis and creative writing. Um, but the more that I was reading, um, these types of writers who were doing, um, creative essays, I, I was drawn more and more to them. Um, so, I mean, you know, the kind of creative essay has been around for a long time. I, I mean, I think of like James Baldwin as the person who like really cemented it as a part of the literary world. But um, there's a lot of writers within the past five years even who have been writing essays that blend cultural criticism and arts criticism. Um, so I'm thinking of people like um, Hilton Nels, Maggie Nelson, Alexander Chi, Gia Tolentino. Um, all of those people are sort of, they have published books, but they were all published um, in newspapers or in BuzzFeed or, you know, in all different sorts of literary magazines beforehand. Um, and so that kind of got me thinking about you know the creative essay or the critical essay as the art form that I'm most interested in um mm. and then on the level of like Wesleyan <laughs> I just um I I would see like the the need for good arts criticism because writing a review about a show is really tricky and there's a lot of pitfalls you can fall into um, and so having that level of care and attention along with the critique um, was something that I, I thought the campus would need as well. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, like simultaneously commenting on something that someone else has created and in so doing also creating a new piece of creative work around what someone else has already done. It's kind of emphasizes the I feel like maybe the interconnectedness of these things the way that you know an art piece can't just exist on its own it always impacts people who then can go on to impact more people with a review of something that they just saw yeah I mean when I write a review of a show or a piece of art you know, I, I'm very honest about like, this is just my opinion. This is how it hit me in the moment. Um, but 
the, the I, I do think that the most productive thing that those pieces of work can do is start a dialogue um, around a piece of artwork. Um, and I think that that dialogue is actually very helpful for an artist um, and to, to see how their work is traveling in ways that they might have not expected. I'm wondering what kind of a role writing plays in your life um, and the different kind of manifestations that it takes, you know, both in your life as a person and as a student, and then also as this big role that EIC of the Argus. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think I've been thinking a lot about writing um, as a way of understanding myself. I mean, I, I think that, um, especially when I was at an early age and was kind of in my like formative moment, I really gravitated towards literature as a way of giving voice to a lot of the experiences I wasn't necessarily understanding, um, within my family or within my various identities um and i think over time i that i used to be like really hyped on that <laughs> the <laughs> idea that like giving language to something is th the power um that literature has and that, like that's the end goal i think over time i've become a little more um fluid in my understanding of what language can do and the ways in which like some things cannot be described by language um, mm -hmm. or maybe shouldn't be described by language. But um, I just think that impulse of having some clarity um, and being just, the, just the, the recognition of reading something being like, yes, that's exactly it. Um, I think that's something that I continue to chase and I find so helpful um, in being able to like articulate myself um, and hopefully, you know, um, when I write, you know, it's as much for me <laughs> as it is for the newspaper or for any other, you know, class or publication or anything. Um, I see it as a way for me to process um, my own experiences. Um, and I think a lot of other um, nonfiction writers feel that way too. Mm. I guess I want to close out by asking, you talked about having this moment of clarity and recognition that you can reach in your own writing or you can find when reading someone else's. I'm curious when you have that moment of recognition of of a successful articulation, what does that feel like? What is that experience like? Um, I, I I would consider it a sense of relief um, that it is possible to convey sometimes very complex emotions that are hitting upon too many things at once, it can feel overwhelming. Um, but I think also there is like this impulse to 
well, I think, you know, as, as a queer writer and as an, an Asian American writer, like I obviously think about like how my writing will inevitably be attached to um, specific identities, right? So I, I feel like the burden, the responsibility for speaking for these communities um, in, a po- in, in a way that serves them. But I, I also think about, um, yeah, I, I think I, I, I think that I don't write this in my diary just for myself. I, I put it out into the world because I want to serve um, these communities. And I don't want to speak on behalf of them, but I would hope that they would get something out of a piece of writing of mine. Yeah, that's really powerful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was so lovely talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Nathan Pugh, a Wesleyan senior majoring in English and theater. Thanks for listening to the Words of Wesleyan. This show is produced by the Shapiro Center for Writing at Wesleyan University. It's hosted by me, Anna Cheltley, and was created by Anna Cheltley, Amy Bloom, and Stephanie Weiner. Our theme music is Let Me Make It Clear by Wesleyan Professor Jay Hogard from his album Harlem Hieroglyphs. Special thanks to our guests, Sarah McRae and Nathan Pugh, for appearing on this episode. Thanks again to our listeners, and be sure to tune in next time 